0: Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Scotiabank Senior Vice President Darcy MacDonald has the results of their latest worry poll, which shouldn't be too surprising given current conditions across Canada. Business professor Dimitri Anastakis looks at the future of Canada's auto industry and why we need to lock in a new electric vehicle deal with the Americans. And you'll meet developer Sharan Sadie, who has a positive outlook and several new projects for Canadians spend 10 hours each week, on average, worrying about our finances, which is up 25% from a year ago. What's more, 32% of people responding to this poll say they're losing sleep over their financial worries. This is a new poll conducted almost exactly a month ago by the folks at Scotiabank. And here to talk about it is the fellow who likely gave the poll the okie-dokie in the first place, Darcy McDonald, senior vice president, deposits, investments, and payments from Scotiabank. Joining us this morning, Mr. McDonald. Darcy, good morning, sir.
1: Hey, good morning, Sterling. Thrilled to be with you.
0: Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, Has all of this heightened anxiety that you've just discovered with your national poll, Darcy, uh, can you attribute this elevated level of anxiety almost directly to COVID?
1: I think think Sterling, it's safe to say that the majority of the worry uh, can be attributed to uh, certainly, to the pandemic and the eighteen to twenty months that we've been living through it. Uh, as you said in the opening, this was a month ago, so this was before the variant really was a concern like it is today. Right, yeah. Um, so I think the last two years have had lots of people questioning their sort of financial fitness and really feeling good about their their futures. A lot of people are expressing concern and worry. Well,
0: yeah, and because, you know, uh, despite the, the, uh, the, the constant reminders from the, polit- from the political class we we're, that we're all in this together, frankly, Darcy, we're not. A lot of us have not missed a, a paycheck or uh, a, an assignment or anything since this began. Others have seen their, their entire careers and working lives literally evaporate before their eyes and are still struggling to find their feet underneath them again. So it's a very unequal togetherness we share and this i think is probably reflected in your polling wouldn't you agree yeah absolutely
1: for sure like as you described i think many of us have made the shift comfortably to working remotely and and to your point never missed a paycheck so Mm -hmm. we probably have the ability to save a little bit more spend less and that and we're probably seeing balances in our checking and savings accounts like we may not have seen for quite a long time and 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 then on the other end of the spectrum there are people who absolutely have been disproportionately impacted um, younger Canadians, those in the gig economy, those who are you know, in the service industry, um, and as different provinces respond to Omnicom differently and whether restaurants go back to half capacity, sporting arenas, things like that, that sure. will certainly in- impact employment. And so those people are certainly in, that, in a more difficult spot.
0: So could you say, though, going into the polling, anticipating the results, that it was more, in in many senses, Darcy, it was more a confirmation of the suspicions and the patterns that you've seen evolving over the last 18 months than anything else?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment, Sterling. I think, you know, over the last year or two, or almost three of doing this survey, you know, some teams have held consistent. Uh, older Canadians are worrying the least, right? And that's probably attributable to that they have some equity in their homes, they may have some money in the bank, and uh, and, and hopefully a good portion may be benefiting from a defined benefit pension plan. Mm-hmm. Um, younger Canadians um, are worrying the most, uh, just for the reasons I just described, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the cost of entry, you know, the housing market is probably daunting. Um, they may not be as firmly, and, you know... Uh they may not have as much momentum in their career as they'd like. They may be in work that's temporary. Um, so yeah, so those two confirmations for there uh, Canadians in the West are worrying almost two times more than 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 our counterparts in the East. And so those trends have remained consistent over the last couple of years.
0: Interesting. Those Canadians in the West, Darcy, that are concerned, would they be primarily, for example, in Alberta because of the awareness of the the dedication of the government of Canada to basically destroying their economy? Is the anxiety level highest in Alberta, for example?
1: Uh, it's, it's equal in Alberta and B.C. Oh. I think it's more... Probably more attributed to the rising cost of real estate and some of the challenges, obviously, that we've experienced in the West with some, um, you know, natural, natural sure. disasters of various kinds, right. but also, uh, you know, being more resource dependent. Um, and, and so just trying to make sure that at Scotiabank, we're there for those folks and making sure we're giving good advice to get people to worry less and sleep better. That's what people
0: for. Interesting, Darcy. You said that uh, among the demographic groups that you were able to identify, younger Canadians, many of them, not all, but many of them appear to be worrying more than, for example, older Canadians. And one statistic just jumped off the page at me here as I was flipping through the report. 63% say they haven't worked with a financial advisor in the last 12 months. That's an interesting stat only, Darcy, because of the, the incredibly aggressive advertising going on right now aimed very specifically at younger Canadians essentially uh, advising them, if you will, to not use a financial advisor, but to plug into some kind of algorithm.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know great observation. Uh, you know so the good news is that those who've met with a financial advisor, whether that be you know a, a human advisor virtually or in person, or sterling, I would argue even received financial advice through Uh, you know, an an advice platform. Okay. That that those folks are feeling better off and more comfortable. Those who haven't delved into their finances, uh, who are worried about, you know, uh, who are worried about spending and savings or maybe not living within a budget, those folks are certainly worrying the the most. And I think they're in the 60% who haven't reached out for help. So I think we'd be advocating for getting, you know, whatever the advice is that works for Canadians. Mm -hmm. And it could be an investment platform, it could be, you know, the branch advisor down the street that we encourage uh, your listeners to sort of take action, do what's comfortable.
0: But still being but pro- in- proactive is painful. Right. But being proactive well, but, and advising or at least informing yourself of ways to be uh, to, to live a more profitable, more financially secure life is not a bad thing, regardless of the source. Right.
1: 100%. You nailed it for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are those now, you said, as I said at the outset, 32%, according to this poll, 32% of respondents say they're losing sleep over their financial worries, Darcy. What's the yeah. most, the most, uh, the, the biggest gnawing problem, the one that actually does rob people of the most sleep? Is it debt? Is it just being in debt?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, the top three would be just ro- worrying about how to grow and protect their investments. So I think all of you know many Canadians have experienced the benefits of a very strong you know almost bull market for the last several years that's reflected in their in, in their investment statement which is positive. Mm-hmm. They're also worrying about being able to pay for day-to-day expenses. All of us are experiencing a little bit of sticker shop where we go to you know fill up our cars with gas or purchase groceries at the store and that inflation is real and eating into disposable income. yep. And then the third one is you nailed it: paying off debt, right? The age-old question of whether to pay off debt faster or invest more, um, and with the record low interest rates, um, you know that's sort of preoccupying folks. And and certainly, what's interesting is like these finances are actually on the list of things Canadians are worrying about. Is like is right is right at the top two or three, right after physical health and health of loved ones.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so this is this is. Um this is consistent across the country that we need to help Canadians you know worry less and feel more. Comfortable about their financial
0: future. Interesting that this might filter through to the government of Canada. We just saw the uh, the fiscal update from the Minister of Finance there a few days ago. Very, very little time and attention paid to what you suggest from your very recent poll, Darcy. The the real concerns of Canadians: the 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 dinner table. How am I going to make the mortgage payment at the end of the month? How am I going to do this, that, and the other? The the basic economic necessity concerns i didn't hear i didn't hear the government reacting or even acknowledging the fact that they are as prevalent as you and your poll suggest they are
1: yeah it's uh i mean they certainly made commitments about trying to support canadians depending on what happens through the uh, next leg of the pandemic which we were encouraged to hear i think all of us feel fortunate that they moved as quickly as they did the first time with the uh, wage subsidy and Uh, the emergency relief benefits. So I think that was all in Canada's best interest. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously we're hoping that they remain open and flexible depending on what the next several weeks and months look like. Um, but, yeah, I would agree with you, Sterling.
0: So uh, as we, uh, we sort of wrap this up, Darcy, and we do uh, thank you very much for your time this weekend. Uh, bottom line, even though we are expressing more overall concern specifically than, than we were a year ago, were you able to glean any sense of optimism at all from your polling and your questions? Is there a, is there a sort of a national will to get through this business and get back to something resembling normal?
1: Yes, there, there's, there's absolutely an optimism, uh, 100%, that, that we saw through, you know, the last 20 months, many Canadians develop really positive spending and saving habits and living within a budget. That's going to persist on the other side of the pandemic, which is absolutely terrific. Uh, we've seen more and more Canadians reach out for help. Uh, to try and establish a financial plan that works for them and their loved ones, and just stating what their personal goals would be—right, whether that's retirement, you know, a major purchase, kids' education, etc.—but mm-hmm. no, certainly, I think there's lots of lots of reasons to be optimistic.
0: Well, it's been a rough year for all of us, especially here in British Columbia. But, you know, at the end of the year, we're still here and we're still strangely <laughs> looking forward to it's Next year has got to be better. And we just keep saying that. Darcy McDonald, thank you very much for this. We do appreciate your time and the work that your team put into this polling. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us this morning and Merry Christmas to you.
2: Yes, yeah,
1: Sterling. Merry Christmas to you, too. And if your listeners want more advice, check out sleepadvisor.com at Scotiabank and that. Uh, and hope to get some uh, good night's sleep over the holidays. Thanks Excellent. for the opportunity, Sterling. Our pleasure,
0: sir. Darcy McDonald joining us from Toronto, Senior Vice President Deposits, Investments, and Payments at Scotiabank. And it's a real pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. He is Professor and Wilson Curry Chair in Canadian Business History at the University of Toronto. And he's just back from vacation, so he's going to be up and raring to go. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Dr. Dimitri Anastakis. Good morning, Dimitri. Welcome. Good morning.
3: Good morning, Sterling. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, it's good to have you back with us. And today we're going to talk about the auto industry. And by way of setting up the conversation, the the Canadian government has said that if if Mr. Biden's protectionist measures go forward, we're going to retaliate with some kind of tariffs of our own. When asked about those Canadian tariffs, the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, said, quote, two days ago, Dimitri, I don't care what Canada thinks. So that's what we're up against. You wrote a piece a week or two ago entitled Canada must once again grab its share of the auto industry despite U.S. protectionism. Very timely conversation, especially with these threats going back and forth across the border. Can you take a moment, though, Dimitri, because you talk in your article about us now being in the fifth wave. We've got a couple of minutes. Can you walk us through the... the, the evolution of the auto industry that brings us to this this point right now where we're almost uh, exchanging blows Canada and the United States
3: well you're absolutely right sterling we've been here before and the threat of a trade war is something that has loomed in the past because Uh, Every time we're in the middle of one of these big investment booms, which we're in the middle of Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, EVs and electric vehicles, we have to fight for our share of investment because we don't own any of these companies. So let me take a moment, if I could, and just go back and talk about these previous four waves of investment. The first big wave was when the auto industry emerged in the early 1900s, and Henry Ford created mass manufacturing. And, And we got our hands on a little bit of that share because we put up tariff walls and forced the Americans to build in Canada if they really wanted to sell in Canada. So they came up here and uh, Ford and Windsor and General Motors showed up and eventually showed up in Oshawa. Uh, And this really made a huge difference in uh, boosting our uh, ability to build cars. And it created the modern Canadian auto stream. Fast forward to the 1950s and 1960s. There's all kinds of retooling going on at that point and Canadians are fearful that they're going to miss out on uh, all these investments, these new plants, as uh, automatic transmissions start to show up and new technologies in cars. And, you know, our, our car industry is not huge in the 1950s and 1960s. It really functions as a kind of, branch plan operations so what what the canadian government decides to do is what we're going to do is we're going to actually integrate our industry we're going to open up the border get rid of the tariffs that we had imposed the 35 percent tariffs and uh, allow the americans and the american companies most importantly to basically do duty-free uh trade across the border and the 1965 auto pact which is The product of that thinking is the first really continentally integrated economic agreement between the two countries, and it's in the auto industry, which is the biggest and most important one. Now, importantly, the the Canadian government requires the American manufacturers to build as many cars as they sell in Canada as part of their deal to allow cross-border duty free trade. So the American manufacturers get the benefits where they can say, oh, now we're just going to build one car in Oshawa and sell it all the way around in North America, whereas we used to build 22 cars in Oshawa and just sell them into Canada. So now they can sell across North America, but Mm -hmm. they have to continue building Oshawa. So we, we get the benefit of that, and it's a huge boom. Fast forward 10 years later, and all of a sudden, you've got questions around safety regulations and emissions regulations and fuel economy right. regulations. The auto industry is being regulated and they're forced to make cars that are lighter, uh, less polluting, and, and they're competing with the Japanese in the 1970s. You know, the Honda Civic starts to show up and the Toyota the Corolla. The first Toyotas, to you're right, yeah. Yeah, that was the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, the Americans are saying, okay, we're going to retool our, 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 our whole industry. And Canadians, again, are worried that they're going to miss out on that. So the Canadian government's start to do something that is a real problem for a lot of people, uh, which is they give money directly to the automakers to build plants in Canada. In 1978, uh, the Ontario and Canadian governments give Ford $78 million to build an engine plant in Ontario that was supposed to go to Ohio. And it creates this dynamic where governments start bidding on assembly plants. And this is something that goes on till today. Uh, There's been no... uh, um, There's been no plant built in North America since the 1990s that hasn't gotten direct government subsidies from somewhere, whether it's Alabama or South Carolina or Ontario, they've all gotten money. Now, the great thing is Canadians are able to get some of that investment. They are are able to build some retool their factories. Then in the 1980s, same thing is happening, but this time it's the Japanese. The Japanese are being forced to come to North America by the Americans. Uh, The Japanese have been eating the Americans' lunch, they're building better cars, they're building better quality cars, so the Americans in response say, well, if you're going to sell into the United States, you better build here and employ Americans. So they forced the Americans to start building factories, Honda and Toyota show up in the early 1980s. Again, Canada is freaking out because if uh, the Japanese build all their plants in the United States, they can simply sell Corollas and Hondas into Canada and not have to worry about it. So the Canadian government does a whole bunch of things. They they put a port blockade in Vancouver in 1985 where they basically say, oh, any Japanese car that's coming in, oh, we're going to inspect every single one of them at the port of Vancouver, which creates this huge slowdown. Sure. So usually they only inspect one out of every 100 vehicles to make sure they're up to standard. But now they're inspecting every single one. The Japanese say, okay, we get the picture. Uh, if we're going to build some plants in the United States, we'll also build some plants in Canada. Right. And the Canadians the Canadians get uh, plants in Ingersoll, Ontario, and Woodstock, Ontario. And there's a uh, um, an aluminum rim plant that's built in British Columbia as a response to this Canadian pressure to force the Japanese to build in in Canada as well, that, that happens in in the eighties, and then fast forward, we're into this last or the latest uh, generation of investment, which is all about EVs. Yes. Same situation: if Canadians don't get the investment, as plants go from the old internal combustion engine vehicles to the new electric vehicles, uh, you're seeing the end of the Canadian industry. Now, the perspective is even more fraught because right now, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, the uh, Biden administration has a number of protectionist measures put into its Build Back Better plan, right. which includes a $12,500 incentive for Americans to buy vehicles, but they're only for vehicles that are built by U.S. Big Three plants with U.S. union labor. In other words, you know, 80% of the vehicles that Canadians build go to the United States market. If we are not going to get that $12,500 incentive, our vehicles are going to face what's the equivalent of a 34% tax on top versus the American-made vehicles. It would mean, effectively, the end of our auto industry. Why would General Motors and Ford and Chrysler... Uh, build uh, cars in north america when they're not going to canada when they're not going to be able to sell them across north america and sell them into canada so this is why there's all this saber rattling going on this is why there's uh, all these uh, trips down to washington by uh, prime minister trudeau and whoever who can go down there and uh, canadians are desperately trying to get that incentive removed so that we can ensure our industry goes forward and and this is in the context of uh, you know General Motors has already made a plan to uh, build a Brake Drop, which is a, a, an EV truck in Ontario. Right. Ford has made an announcement that it's going to build five EVs in Oakville. Windsor has made an announcement that it's going to build uh, EV uh, minivans in, in uh, Windsor. Yep. But if, if this incentive passes, who knows whether all of those investments are going to come to pass. The uh, U.S. Big 3 might withdraw those, which would really mean potentially... The deintegration of the industry and the end of a Canadian automotive industry which would be pretty bad for the Canadian economy
0: well i'm glad you you raised the point about the investments announced by General Motors in Oshawa and the other two of the big three elsewhere in Ontario uh, with respect to billions on the on the the planning boards with uh, converting their production lines to electric only in some cases so all of these Pending conversions, Dimitri, are uh, contingent upon some kind of accommodation being created uh, by between Canada and the United States. Because, as you say, if Biden's Build Back Better uh, provisos uh, regarding Canadian content are are, are allowed to be uh, play to be put into place, we lose flat out. We just flat out lose, don't we? Absolutely.
3: You you hit the nail on the head there. Like, this is why uh, everybody in the Canadian government is very much invested in this issue, because it's existential. Uh, If we don't get some sort of accommodation... Uh, there is a looming threat that you could see the quick and and really quick erosion of whatever uh, production capacity. And as soon as those plants lose those mandates, as soon as you you find out, oh, you know what, they're not going to invest there, what happens is there's a kind of a domino effect. The parts industry gets whacked. And the Mm -hmm. Canadian parts industry is pretty important. I mean, people don't realize that, you know, Assembly probably employs about 30,000 people directly. But the parts industry in Canada, which is all over the country, yes, uh, a lot of it is in Ontario, uh, is about one hundred twenty-five, 130,000 people. Yep. And then there's all the other uh, aspects of the parts industry, the you know, uh, steel, whatever, that go into this. Now, uh, hopefully, uh, there's some accommodation that occurs because most of the time in these previous rounds of investment wars, most of the time, uh, Canadians have figured out a way to make sure that they are... Uh, Protected from protectionism, and they get the benefits. I'm not sure how it's going to work or, uh, this time around. I, I have I have a lot of hope and optimism that they will figure something out. Uh, a couple days ago, the prime minister mentioned how there might be some sort of idea around making uh, uh, these tax incentives that the Biden administration is proposing that Canadians would do the same thing, i.e., make it reciprocal right. so that uh, cars that get built in Canada by union labor or cars that get built in Canada in general uh, get the benefit as American cars get the benefit coming back across the border so that there's maybe a way to continue the integration of the industry uh, which you know uh, has gone through a bit of a tough time in the last 10-15 uh, years uh, going back to the, uh, the the bankruptcy of General Motors and Chrysler but even during the Trump administration with the The battle over the USMCA and content regulations, there's all kinds of fights going on about automotive, in part because Americans, you know, who own a lot of the industry really do want to get the benefits of that industry. And Canadians who don't own a lot of that industry also want to get their fair share of the industry. So this is the fight that's going on right now.
0: Sterling Fox with you, talking about the future of Canada's auto industry with Dr. Dimitri Anastakis from the School of Business History at the University of Toronto. Did open the lines, Dimitri. Bob in Chilliwack is going to join us. Bob, good morning.
1: Okay, I'll be real quick. Um, The problem that I have with this is that if the private sector wants to run an auto industry here, how come they are unwilling or unable to uh, do it without uh, some kind of government support? We have the, uh, I'll call it the laziest venture capital Make money held in private hands on the planet as far as uh, doing anything that would be considered a venture
0: interesting uh, and uh, dimitri for your uh, comment on that uh, again i'm quoting from your article it will take some aggressive diplomacy and innovative policy making by governments and stakeholders to ensure that canada doesn't miss out on the most important wave yet of automotive investment bob's point i mean why is government money involved at all Government money is involved because
3: the scale of the auto industry is such that it's uh, so huge that you you actually need the government to be able to support these kinds of investments. Uh, I, I know you could say, oh, it should be just completely private. These auto companies do this. The, the problem is that in North America, every every stripe and every type of political uh, government, whether it's a Republican government in South Carolina or Alabama, or a, uh, a, a Liberal government in Canada or Ontario, they all are in this game, and you will lose out on those investments. And the the value of those investments is so great that they, even if you do throw money at them, they pay for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that that sounds completely counterintuitive, but I once asked the former Premier of Ontario uh, about the $78 million uh, investment that the governments gave to Ford uh, uh, and I said, well, why would you do that? Why would you give Ford, which is a huge company that makes millions and millions of dollars, of that money? And he said, well, we wanted to get the plant. And it made complete sense because uh, the investment would have paid for itself within three years through property ta- property taxes, taxes, income taxes and corporate taxes. So there's absolutely no uh, question that this investment pays for itself.
0: All right, Dimitri.
3: That's why, that's why governments do that,
0: right? And and of course, with there and there is literally so much at stake here. And historically, as it turns out, Democrats are far more protectionist than Republicans, contrary to what a lot of Canadians believe. Dimitri Anastakis, a great pleasure to have you back on our show again, sir. Uh, we do appreciate your time on a Saturday morning, and we do wish you a very merry Christmas
3: great, Sterling. You too. Happy holidays and best for 2022. Let's get through this pandemic.
0: You bet. And we'll talk again, sir. Dimitri Anastakis joining us from the School of Business History at the University of Toronto. And thanks for your calls. We're going to spend a moment talking about the redevelopment of a what well, you could call this particular part of Metro Vancouver a challenge. We're talking about Wally in Surrey. And the man who is spending a lot of time and spending a lot of years to say nothing of dollars redeveloping Wally is the president and CEO of Sure Developments. It's a pleasure to welcome Charan Satie to our program. Good morning and welcome, Charan. Uh, good morning, Sonny.
4: How are you, sir?
0: I'm very well, thanks. It's good to have you with us. When you go to your website, the Ten Share Group, uh, you find a couple of sold out banners on Flamingo 1 and Wally and Wally Station coming soon, but I think what strikes me the most when I go to your website is the the picture that you have of basically the intersection of King George and 108th where the old Flamingo Hotel used to be, that area, and you've got like, uh, I'm counting at least probably six, eight, uh, a Buildings that are either underway or on the way soon, and another perhaps 10 that are outlined as in future possibilities. This is a massive redevelopment. Tell us about how it got started.
4: Well, it, number one, thank you for being so excited. I hear that in your voice. And it's, it's fantastic to see other people being excited, same as I am. Uh, the journey started about 16 years ago. Um, it's, it's almost like an uh, accidental buy that I used to drive by the property all the time. It, it, it was derelict. There was nobody there. Right. Like, homeless people with uh, shopping carts and stuff like that. And it presented a lot of opportunity for me. Um, I, I call myself a small developer. And be, being able to take that um, land, I started doing a lot of research on the area and found out that the, uh, the, uh, the mayor at, at that point, who was Diane Watts, had this vision of making that into the new downtown. We're brought into the division and here I am today and carry on with the vision and um, it's been a, a phenomenal journey. It doesn't mean it hasn't been, it hasn't ups and downs, but uh-huh. it's been a phenomenal journey.
0: Well, it is certainly a challenging neighborhood to say the very least. And of course, not too far down the road from where your project and Wally Station and all of those massive developments that you're involved with, just the next uh, SkyTrain stop down the road is Gateway. So there's already a project similar to yours, except yours is larger, but it suggests that the area is certainly ready for it.
4: It, it certainly is ready. I mean, the proof has been uh, in the number of sales we've had over the years. Uh, I mean, every building that we've ever put up um, uh, was sold out in a day or less. And um, it's pretty remarkable the amount of people who are moving in. But number one, it's affordable. Number two, it's uh, uh, linked to the Skytrain, which is from it. Uh, Quattro is about seven minutes, eight minutes to walk distance, walking distance. From the new Flamingo, it's uh, five minutes to walking distance. And Wally Station about two and a half uh, minute walking distance. Sure, so that's been a massive let's uh, um, um, say advantage for us, um, and of course affordability. Like we are probably still one of the most affordable areas to buy into.
0: Well, as far as the development along the SkyTrain line, you're certainly following in and uh, following along with the original design going back to the 80s when the Expo line and SkyTrain was first uh, d- innovated and introduced to Vancouver. The whole plan was that around each of the SkyTrain stations all the way from downtown to the end of the line would eventually morph into an area surrounded by uh, multiple unit dwellings. And uh, yours in in the Wally area, there's not a SkyTrain Station there, you're between SkyTrain stations, but there's such an enormous amount of property available there. Um, it, it 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 sort of it, is it possible that another station could be created, or you're just making sure that buildings are are put in proximity to SkyTrain that's a comfortable walk.
4: I think uh, I don't think there's going to be another SkyTrain station, uh, at least not in my lifetime, I don't think. Okay. But I think that the way the SkyTrain station is relating to my developments, let's say it's about 10 minutes walking distance. It's a nice little brisk walk, and uh, um, it, so it has all the advantages um, of being a, a transfer-oriented development. And what we are trying to do right now is basically what we have been trying to do is make it a complete community, so it'll have his resident uh, residents uh, as well have a commercial uh, space as well. Sure. As recreational space, so all in one
0: space. Now you talked about the Flamingo tower. This of course is built on the, uh, on the, uh, the site of the old Flamingo hotel, a rather storied and colorful Wally location over the years. So now it's going to be a super tower. You sold 365 homes last month, Sharan, in, in, in a weekend. Yes,
4: it was a phenomenal success. Uh, we opened our door on Saturday morning around eight or eight o'clock in the morning, and Sunday night around nine, we were sold out. Um, uh, this it was, it was it was really heartwarming to get. I was in the sales center on Saturday and listen to people what their perception of Wally is. Right, uh, it's an up up and coming area. It's uh, it's got huge advantage too, as far as the location is concerned. It's close to the universities. Um And of course, the city hall is right there as well. Mm-hmm. So it has a lot of lot of going for it, and people are recognizing that and moving in. And we've had people from Abbotsford, North Vancouver. I mean, you name it. We've had people from. I think there was two buyers from Saskatchewan who bought in there at all. Did they see some, something happening here.
0: So 15 years after you decide, Sharan, to take a chance on Wally, uh, you've taken that chance, you've done the investment, done the development, and as it turns out, you were kind of right, because uh, 15 years later, there are lineups of people quite willing to take a chance on Wally. Absolutely. Uh, you
4: know what, I, I think uh, the whole, whole concept of actually having a community there uh, as, as a full uh, self-sustaining with a commercial office space, Everything there, I think, is attracting a lot of people um, to the neighborhood. And uh, um, and, you know, yes, we do have sometimes homeless people, but whereas the there's a problem with homeless people all over the low mainland, it's not the only place. But as far as what's happening in the area, it's 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 in. uh, Let's say it really makes me happy that um, the vision that was started off is actually coming together one building at a time.
0: Exactly. When now, you, you said you sold 365 homes in a weekend last month. When will Flamingo Tower be actually up and ready for its occupants? It takes about three and a half years to build
4: a tower. So that's what we're, what we're looking at. Uh, um, but in between, we are hoping to launch the uh, Wally Station project, right? which will have about 475 units, as well as about quarter million square feet of uh, office space. With the commercial on the ground floor,
0: how many buildings in total, Sharan, in, in your master plan, in your vision for the redone and fully redeveloped Wally? How many how many buildings do you envision uh, developing? Nine. Wow! Right now, it's nine. We are hoping to buy some more land to continue on with this
4: venture and uh, making this community larger and larger. Because right now, with the number of buildings which are already complete. With the uh, with the new building coming up, we'll have over I think it's about two thousand people, two and a half thousand no two and a half thousand people will move in just with the existing building that's uh, um, uh, now under construction or already
0: complete. Mm. And uh, so as far as futures, are you, given the the incredible success of of selling 365 homes in a couple of days, I would imagine then you're pretty confident going forward with Wally Station, the next project, and all those other six or seven buildings.
4: Well, I've always been confident about this area because I I believe that it's catering to the locals and the price for the locals. As far as Wally Station is concerned, we are already getting uh, registration and we're not even really advertising too much about Wally Station because it's still about nine months away uh, before we can actually sell it. Uh, there's a there's a big process that we have to go through in getting it done. Um, uh, but I, I expect that one to be may not be able to sell it in one weekend. We may
0: might have to be three days. Sure. But still, uh, nonetheless, I, I suppose, very encouraged by the fact that, uh, like yourself, uh, Wally is, well, there are just a lot of people who see not the Wally that perhaps has earned whatever reputation it has with some of us, but they see the Wally of the future, which is a very different part of Surrey. Absolutely. I mean,
4: I, I always come uh, to give an example of Yerton. When Yerton first started developing, it, it was worse than what Wally ever was. And look at it now mm-hmm. as people, the first group of investors went apart and then now the, the homeowners, uh, the, the people who want to buy not only rentals, but also people of my age group. I'm, I just turned 70 and um, uh, people of my age are moving into that area because they love it. The walkability of it, the, having the commercial all So it's very much like the town. But I think it's going to be better.
0: Interesting. Well, I, I hadn't thought of that as an example, but it is quite a comparison, actually, because Yelton wasn't exactly Vancouver's uh, brightest spot uh, before we started uh, massive re- redevelopment in that area as well. Well, listen, Sharon, uh, we th- we wish you considerable ex- success with this. And friends, if you'd like to see uh, what's going on in Wally or what our guest envisions the future of Wally to look like, have a look at his website. He is the CEO and president of the Tensure Group. That's spelled T-I-E-N s-h-e-r so it's ten share t-i-a-e-n s-h-e-r dot com and uh, it's it's quite a sight sharan sadie thanks very much for being with us and uh, continued success with wally sir i appreciate the um enthusiasm oh that's it's genuine i've been been driving through wally for a long long time and it's nice to see it turning a corner Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.